right, good morning, Riverview. How was your Thanksgiving? Yeah? Andrew, how was yours? You'll talk to me. Yeah, everybody was doing good? Okay, all right. Somebody this morning said, um, uh, ate a little too much, and I think that tends to happen around the holidays. Hey, if uh, you're watching at home, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, glad to have you with us. Uh, go ahead and uh, type on those keys, interact with people that you're watching with. Um, we look forward to the day where we all get to kind of be back here together uh, in this auditorium worshiping together, and uh, glad that you guys are here in our physical space as well, and we get to worship uh, together. Go ahead and open up your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, that's where uh, we are going to be, and um, uh, this, last night, guys, uh, I didn't sleep very well, and uh, that tends to happen on uh, Saturday evening. Um, I try to go to sleep and, and I fall asleep, but then I wake up at some point early sat or Sunday morning and, uh, and then I'm just mad. <laughs> Most of the time I'm mad because I can't go back to sleep. I'm like, I got, I got to get up in a little while and I got to get ready. And, and, and so I'm just mad. Um, this morning when I woke up, I wasn't mad. Um, I was, uh, actually, I was giddy, and I don't know exactly why I was giddy, but I think that I was just excited to come and hang out with you guys. Um, I was glad to do Thanksgiving with our family and stuff, but like when we're together, it's, it's, a, it's a good time. And uh, the, the passage this morning, it's, it's kind of weird, it's kind of a difficult passage, so it wasn't, I don't necessarily think that it was just like, I'm just ready to preach this text, although I'm ready to preach this text. Um, I, I was excited to see you guys, and so I'm glad we get to spend uh, this time together. And so I'm going to um, pray uh, that the Lord would bless this time, and it would be sweet for us, um, that we would enjoy uh, communing together and worshiping together. Father, thanks for uh, this morning. Uh, thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are gathered in this room who um, want to hear from you. They don't care to hear from me, and I don't care to hear from me. I want to hear from you, and we want to hear from you. And so we expect, Holy Spirit, that you're going to do that work here um, I pray that you would tune our ears to what you have for us. Um, Lord, I'm available for you to speak through, um, do your work this morning. Um, I pray that none of us would um, leave here the same way uh, that we came. And as we interact with your word, Father, that we would, um, that we would truly, as brothers and sisters, that we would want to hear from you, not just to hear new truth, but to um, be challenged by it, encouraged by it, and to apply it to our lives. And so, Whatever that truth is that you have for every individual this morning, I pray that we would be willing and available to let you uh, work it into us and, and receive it, God. So this morning's yours. Use it for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Uh, so in 1 Corinthians 8, that's where we're going to get to in just a, a few minutes. Um, but I want to tell you a story um, from uh, 2 Kings uh, chapter 20 real quick, just to kind of set the backstory here uh, a little bit. I don't know how familiar you are with the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel, um, but there was a king of Judah who went by the name of Hezekiah. And, and scripture tells us that Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And that's a big statement because the things that are true of Scripture and of the kings, uh, Scripture usually points out um, or describes the kings by uh, two different ways. They were either evil or they were good or they did what was right. And so you'll read in First uh, and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles about the lineage and you'll hear so-and-so did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or so-and-so did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, unfortunately, um, throughout the history of the kings, there were more bad kings than there were good kings. But Hezekiah, we find, is one of the good guys. He's one of the, the good kings. And when he became king, he went and he knocked down all the pagan temples, all the idols, all, all of the, the wicked worship places around the land, which was a big deal because his daddy was the one who set those things up. 
Now, I don't know if you ever go around tearing your daddy's stuff down, but that doesn't usually go very well uh, for people. But Hezekiah didn't care. Now, I want to take just a, just a quick second to just give like a little side story here. Like, Hezekiah had a terrible lineage. His daddy was terrible, but it didn't dictate who he would become because he would follow the Lord's way. I don't know if you got a bad daddy, you got a bad mama, you got a bad grandma and grandpa. I want you to know that your lineage doesn't have to be the same as the lineage that you came from, okay? Hezekiah is a, is a trophy of God's grace and how you can walk in goodness when your family line has been bad. So if you had a bad daddy, you had a bad mama, you had a bad line, that doesn't have to dictate where you go. You might have had a rough start, get a, stum- get a stumble off the blocks, but it doesn't have to end um, the way that your mama and daddy did, okay? You could have Hezekiah's story here. That's just a side note. But Hezekiah here, God was with him. And when, uh, and when I say that he was a good king, and I say that he was a good dude, for, for me, he's like top three of the kings. You've got David. I mean, I mean, David's David, right? He's the top. And then you've got Josiah in my book. And then you've got Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a top three king. And his whole life was awesome, guys. But when you get to the end of his life, something happened. Everybody say something happened. Something happened, that's right. And if, if we were in a melodrama, that's when the music would cue and it would be dum-dum-dum, right? There's an arrogant pride that began to rise up in Hezekiah. And I don't know if it's because um, he knew God so well or knew a lot about God. I don't know if it's because he knew that God was blessing him. I don't know what it is. But there was a nasty and an arrogant pride that crept up inside of him. And we know this because Scripture tells us that one day, there, uh, one afternoon, there were some Babylonians who came by his palace and, and wanted to see everything that Hezekiah had done. And so Hezekiah was more than willing to welcome them in and show them everything that, that he had done. And so he walks them around and says, there's the pantry right over there. Look at all this food that we have. He walks them around and says, hey, that's where we keep the gold and that's where we keep the silver. Look at everything that I've amassed. And he began to walk them around the palace and to show them the magnificence of the palace. He, there was nothing that he didn't show these Babylonians. Look what I've done. It was really kind of a throw up in your mouth, kind of a sickness and arrogance that was taking place in Hezekiah here. And the truth was God wasn't too happy about it. His prophet Isaiah wasn't too happy about it because God sends Isaiah to go and confront him. And he says, dude, did you show him everything? Yeah, why wouldn't I show him everything? Look at everything that I've done. You, you really showed him everything. And Isaiah says, that's not very good. That, that wasn't a good idea because everything that we have here is going to be carried off to Babylon. Everything that you see, there's nothing that's going to be left here. People from your family are going to be carried off. People from your faith community People from the community abroad, they're going to be carried off, they're going to be carried off in shackles, and they're going to become slaves, and not only are they going to be slaves, some of them are going to become eunuchs. I don't know if you know much about eunuchs, but that's not a good ending, guys. It's just not. All of this was, it was bad. But what I want you to hear is how Hezekiah's response was so ruthless and so callous to what Isaiah tells him. He says, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not? if there will be peace and security during my lifetime. Well, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? I mean, what makes that so ruthless here on the surface? What, what makes it so ruthless is, is what he's saying is, if it's good with me, if my legacy is okay, if people read about me in, in the annals of the Chronicles, if they read about me in the annals of the Kings, and they hear of all the amazing things that I've done, if there was peace in my time, if it looks good on me, if I look good, then it doesn't matter what happens to anybody else. Because listen, this was from the mouth of somebody who loved the Lord. 
This was from the life of somebody who had walked with God, who had, who had lived a good life. But when you look towards the end, his love for his family, his love for the faith community, his love for the, the community abroad, it had become so cold, it becomes so calloused. And here, here's why I'm bringing this up this morning. Because Hezekiah knew God. Hezekiah loved God. He did some really amazing things for God in his lifetime. Yet even with all the knowledge that he had, somewhere along the line he lost his love for people and he lost his love for the people in his faith community, the people in his broader community. He lost his love. It had disappeared. He, he was the only one that mattered in his circle. Nobody else matters. If you write things down, go ahead and write this down. You can't love God well if you don't love his people well. The, the, the return to that is if you love God's people well, you can begin to love God well, but you can't love God well if you don't love his people well. I want to go back to something that we talked about a few weeks ago from John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus has given his uh, followers this clear distinctive of how people are going to know that they belong to him. In verse 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're to love one another. By this, all people are going to know that you're my disciples if you what? Have love for one another. So how are people going to know that they belong to Jesus? If they have love for one another. But what I want you to look at, and what we didn't look at a few weeks ago, is this word love, of where it comes from. That word love there is from the Greek word agape. Now, some of you know that, and you know that uh, what agape means. It's not your first rodeo in church, and so you've got a little bit of a handle on that. Agape, it means unconditional love, right? And this was, this was Jesus talking about this unconditional love way before he would ever go to the cross. Now, we know that Jesus is the example. He would go to a cross, but this is the way that he had loved it. He had spent time with people. He had had patience with people. He loved people that others wouldn't love. He loved the unlovely. This is way before he goes to the cross. But Jesus would go to a cross. He would have unconditional love for people. He would be self-sacrificing, and there would be so many people that would be on his mind, people that had no that had no ability to give him back anything, right? He was dying for people that had nothing to offer him. This was self-sacrificing, setting aside his own rights in order that other people might have life. And, and so he called his people to agape one another, to love one another, to agape people as he had agape them, to love one another as he had loved them. Now, agape, we've said, it's, it's a love that is self-sacrificing. It's putting yourself aside while, while setting others above yourself. And the tricky thing about agape love is that it's messy. <laughs> it's incredibly messy. Agape love, it doesn't stop when somebody doesn't go as fast as you. A lot of times, like, we're, we're on a pace, and we want everybody to come along as fast as we go, or we want people to grow as fast as we grow. We want them to know everything that we know as fast as we know it, and it's just not the case, and when people don't go as fast as we go, we, we kind of write them off. And I, had to, I had to talk with my son about this just yesterday. Like, he's got zero patience, zero, and he comes about it honestly because his daddy has zero patience as well, and so I mean, it's quick to spot in him because I can spot it in myself, and I'm saying, son, People aren't always going to go as fast as you want them to go. They're not always going to answer as fast as you want them to answer. But yet we, we tend to want people to move at our speed. But agape love allows people to grow at their pace. Agape love steps into the messy and says, you don't have to go at my pace. I'm still going to have unconditional love for you. Agape love, it, it doesn't stop when, when you've got differing opinions on social issues and ethical issues or moral issues or even biblical issues. 
When there are things that, that are going on that you don't agree with, agape love shows up and still loves the people around you, even though you don't see eye to eye on the same kinds of things. Agape love, it doesn't stop when you've been offended by somebody over and over and over again. That's actually when it kicks in, when there's no reason to love that person, when they've got nothing to offer you, when they continue to, to, to drive you crazy. That's when it shows up. That's when unconditional love shows up. Agape love, it moves into the messy bits of life, and it causes us to sometimes be willing to lay down our rights, to lay down our rights in order that somebody else might be able to get up and stand on their feet so that we can all experience the love and the grace of Jesus together, so that we can all learn to experience his sacrificial love in and of ourselves and so that we can give that sacrificial love to others as well. That's what agape love does for us. You ever had somebody who just sacrificially loved you that way? Who just loved you so much that it caused you to grow? And when you saw them love like and, and set themselves aside, it spurred you into a place that you didn't even know that you could go. And I, I'm, I'm going to say this, and it's not because I want to be mushy-gushy, because Ashley's in the room right now. But, but every morning when I wake up, I feel like I experience God's unconditional love through, through my wife. Because guys, as hard as this is going to be for you to believe, I'm not very lovely sometimes, right? I know that. I, know, I see the shock on your face, okay? There are times when I'm hard to love, but yet every morning when, when I, I wake up and I'm rude to my kids and I'm rude to my wife, I'm rude to other people, I'm snarky, I'm nasty, like, like she wakes up and still loves me in an unconditional way. It, it, just, it just happens like that. Because Hezekiah loved God. He loved God. But there was this season in his life where he just was not agapeing other people. And I, I'm guessing that you've had people that have been agapeing you in your life. Whether it's now or you can go back to a mom or a dad, you can go back to a coach, you can go back to uh, an instructor, you can go back to a friend. I'm guessing you've had that. Have you been that for somebody else? Have, have, have you shown uh, this unconditional love? Or is our love somewhat consistent on uh, if it's convenient for me? Or does my love show up against my inconvenience at times? See, again, Hezekiah, he, he loved God, but he wasn't agaping other people. His knowledge of God, it wasn't being lived out for others. And again, you can't love God well if you're not loving his people well. You can't love him well if you're not loving his people. And, and so what does our love look like? Are we loving people and, and by the way that we love people, the knowledge that we have of God, does it cause us to love people the way that we've been loved by him? We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and the church would not have been passing the agape test. They were selfish in their love, and it was bringing division inside the church. It was beginning to rip this thing apart. And so in chapter 8, um, I'm going to be honest, this was kind of hard uh, for me because this doesn't really translate uh, to, to our scenario very well because Paul, it, the church is asking Paul this question. He says, can a believer eat uh, food sacrificed to idols? Now, in reality, like, that won't translate for us because we don't have a whole lot of that going on here in the States, right? There's not a whole lot of animal sacrifices going on here in Nebraska. We're not walking on the street and you see Bill taking a bull down to the altar, down to the temple so that he can slaughter them so they can worship together right? And then inviting everybody over for the picnic that happens after that. that just, that's just not a reality for us. And so that makes it somewhat difficult to take this passage and to overlay it in our context. But we do have other messy things that go on in our lives. There are some other non-black and white issues going on in our world. 
There were some gray areas at best, and, and, and so we want to press into these gray areas to try to use this as an overlayer to what we're going through. And so as we walk through this, what I want you to do is I want you to sense Jesus' words coming back over and over and over in the gray areas that you are personally in or have, have decisions around, right? Just as I've loved you, you're to love others. Sacrifice for others. Set aside your right to be right. Agape people in your world. So look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love, this is that agape, that agape love, it builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something or otherwise, if anybody thinks he's got life all figured out and nobody can teach him anything, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Okay, let me give you the backstory here. The question that Paul's being asked is, can we eat meat or can we eat food that's been sacrificed to idols? Now, again, pagan temples and sacrificing of idols, it seems somewhat of an irrelevant issue for us here in Ashland. Um, but for the church in Corinth and the people in Corinth, like this was a big deal, right? This was a huge issue because idolatry and pagan worship was, was common in the Greco-Roman society. It was everywhere that they looked. And so the meat that would be offered, it was usually divided up into three different sections. There was a section um, that went as a burnt offering on, on, on the altar. There's a second portion of it that went to the priest who was kind of the governor of that particular temple. And then there was a third section of it that went to the person who brought the sacrifice to the altar. So it was kind of like a win-win-win for the people who were all involved in this. And so what would happen was if the priest um, didn't eat everything or wasn't really that hungry that afternoon, he could take what he didn't eat down off the altar and he would take it into the market downtown and he could sell it or he could, uh, he could use somebody else to go downtown and sell the meat. And so I want you to try to imagine this, okay, that you're strolling around Whole Foods or you're strolling around Trader Joe's, you're heading down to the farmer's market and you're trying to figure out your grocery list. You're thinking, man, I got to make sure that I get the mayonnaise. I got to make sure that I get the herbs for this deal. And you're trying to figure out, this is my meal plan for the week. Then as you're walking, walking around, then bam, all of a sudden you come across this end cap, like this chic end cap, right? It just kind of captures your eye. Like, man, nobody can miss this. And at the end of this aisle, what you have is this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And this is the good stuff, guys. This, this is the real good stuff. Because the, the food that was offered to the idols was the best of the best. So we're talking about filet here, okay? If you like it bacon-wrapped, you're talking bacon-wrapped filet. And this stuff was sold so much cheaper than any of the other meat that was coming down to the marketplace as well because it was so prevalent. And so there was a question that was abounding. Can we eat this meat? Is it okay for us to eat this meat? These are the prime cuts. This is the best stuff. And it's so much cheaper than everything else that's here. And so the believers that were around there, some of them said, you know, this isn't really that big of a deal. Go to the market, buy the meat, eat the meat. It's the good stuff. It's not a big deal at all. But there were other people in the church who the very idea of buying this meat and eating this meat, it was so crushing and damaging to their faith. They couldn't fathom that anybody else would want to eat it because this was their background. This was their life. They made those walks down to the temples with their sacrifices. They gave very real worship to these so-called gods. They experienced things in these temples and at these altars that none of their Jewish brothers and sisters had experienced to this point. 
And so they, they couldn't get their mind around the fact that people would want to eat it and the people that, weren't, that were eating it, they couldn't get their mind around the fact that these brothers and sisters wouldn't want to eat any of this stuff. And so you have this conflict going on. And so food was much more significant to them. And to see their brothers and sisters sitting in the temple restaurants, to see them sitting there and laughing it up with, with these other pagans or even laughing it up with other people in the church and eating this meat, like it was so crushing to their faith, it was so crushing to their soul. And in these gray areas where there doesn't seem to be this black and white answer, yes, it's okay to do that, or no, it's not okay to do that, this is what right looks like, this is what wrong looks like, this is where we're going to see Hezekiah kind of love come in, or we're going to see Jesus Agape kind of love come in. Where this is going to be all about me, or if it's going to be all about setting aside my rights. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to call the church to love like Jesus in the midst of these gray areas, where there doesn't seem to be a yes or a no, where it is gray. He's going to call people to love here. And uh, we would love to say that, that everybody was loving like Jesus, right? We, we love to say like, like they, everybody in the church was getting it right, just like we love to say that we all get it right in the church today. But that's just not what was happening in Corinth. It wasn't happening uh, at all. There were a lot more Hezekiahs, it seemed, than there were Jesus Agape lovers. And if we're being honest, it feels like sometimes in the church, there's, there's often a lot of more Hezekiah love going on. Like, this is about me than it is about setting aside myself and having a Jesus Agape kind of, of love. And so the obvious question that's on the table here for the church is, this meat somehow contaminated? Is it okay for us to eat? It, did, did their gods somehow affect this meat? And, and, and if I eat this, what are people around me, what are they going to think? So is it okay or not? Is it just give me a clear yes or no answer? And so Paul, what he's going to say in these next few verses, he's going to say, well, sometimes it depends. Yes, it's okay sometimes. No, it's not okay in other scenarios. It all depends on what the scenario looks like. And none of us want to hear that answer. Like, we want a yes or we want a no. And if we were to try, try to take this and put an overlay into our context right now, like, nobody wants, nobody wants, like, yes sometimes and no sometimes. Like, think about the issue. Like, some of us have masks on in here. Some of us don't have masks on. Like, this is an issue for us in the church. This is a gray area for us that we're dealing with right now. And we're trying, is it okay not to wear a mask? Is it okay to wear a mask? This is the very real thing that the church is kind of figuring out right now or what we're trying to do in society. Is it okay? Is it not okay? And the answer sometimes that we would have to say is, yes, it's okay sometimes. No, it's okay not to wear them other times. Like we're trying to, but we want a yes or a no. Like all of us would agree it would be so much easier from a leadership perspective, it would be so much easier, easier to lead your home. And in these scenarios, it'd be like, if somebody just said, yes, and somebody said, no, but the problem is the yeses and the noes don't agree, so that continues to leave us in a gray space. And so we're left with trying to figure out, what does Paul give us in this scenario like this? This is a gray area, so what do we have to do? What do we have to do? Jesus had said, um, it's not about what goes into your mouth that makes you clean or dirty. It's about what comes out of the mouth. So Jesus had said that this is not an issue of food. Jesus has said this is an issue of, of the heart. It's not about what goes in, it's about what comes out. What made a person clean was the grace of God through Jesus applied to somebody's life through faith. 
And they would begin to live that out. It wasn't food. And Paul's going to say in verse 8, he's going to say, we're not better off if we eat. We're not worse off if we don't eat. Food, he's saying, is not the issue. It's, not, it's a non-issue. It's about the heart, and it's about the growth of a brother and sister in Christ. And so the reality is that Jesus says, let's push towards growth. And so Paul echoes the words of Jesus in here, let's push towards growth. And, and there was, the thing was, there were strong believers in the church that knew this. And there were some other believers in the church who, who struggled with this. The strong believers knew that food, the food wasn't contaminated. They, they knew that the food, it wasn't a big deal. But there were weaker brothers and sisters in the church who struggled with this at, at best because of their, their past. They had a hard time walking past the idol meat. They had a hard time going over to a picnic or a barbecue with somebody who had idol meat on the menu. It was an issue for them because whenever they saw it, it began to replay the tapes. They began to replay what was going on in their past because they had taken these offerings and they had been going through something and their gods had said, hey, bring an offering and you, and you sacrifice it and then all things will be better. And so when somebody says, hey, now that you're a believer, bring that offering to the, the table, they're struggling with how does that work? Struggling with how does that play out? Or they're seeing a, a brother or a sister taking food that was sacrificed to an idol of which they had shown worship to at some point and just saying, this is not okay. How could you ever see that this is okay? How could anybody eat this? There's freedom to eat, but they didn't understand their freedom yet. I want to ask you, like, is there anything that you've walked into from your past that you've just said, man, that was bad. It was a gray area, but I just stumbled into this thing. And when I see a brother or sister now engaging in what's probably gray, it's not a black or a white, yes or no, like I really struggle with that. I remember um, when I was a teenager, uh, I struggled with alcohol. I was 17, 18. I just went off the rails. I was drinking all the time. And it wasn't, it wasn't good for me. And then I, came, I became a believer um, in November of, of 1999. I was 18 years old and um, I saved. And, and so I was like, man, alcohol, never doing that. Now, now, this is a touchy issue because for some, alcohol is black and white. And for others, it's gray. And, and, I would, and I would lean towards the area where it's gray, but not everybody would agree with that. But in my scenario, when I, became a, when I became a believer, it was complete black and white. You do not touch alcohol because it keeps you from growing. And, and so I lived like that for a while. And then um, I joined the army, had a roommate, and uh, loved the Lord. This, this guy just like, taught me how to read my Bible. Like I was reading my Bible before, but he was teaching me how you study, and not just study the scriptures, but, but read other things too that help you understand what's going on in the world. And, and so he taught me how to read. And again, like, this guy loved the Lord, but he drank too. And not, not to get drunk, but he, but he drank. And this was an issue for me. Like I would come home and there would be um, uh, booze sitting in the cabinet, like, like people who would say, that's the good stuff. And, and so uh, like he would say, like, this is okay. And I'd say, no, this is not okay. It's not okay at all. Like, how could you have this in your house? Don't you know this keeps me from growing? And he's like, you, you have freedom in Christ to do that. I was like, no, but I, listen, I can't. And I want you to know what, what he did. He got rid of everything. He got rid of it all. I don't know if he drank anymore uh, while I was in the house, but I know that there was nothing in the house because he was willing to sacrifice what he felt like was a freedom for him in order for me to not stumble and grow. Now, is there anything that you've kind of like wrestled with, but that like you struggled with like when, when before Christ or even now, we say, man, that's a gray area. And I know that some people may have the freedom, but I just can't. Do you have the freedom to let somebody else walk in that way? Do you have 
the grace to understand that somebody else might see it a little bit differently than you in an area that's gray. What is that, like, what's that struggle feel like? So there's a lot of black and white stuff in the scriptures, a lot of black and white yes and no stuff, but there are a lot of areas that are just gray at best. And the law that scripture gives us to walk through these things isn't just my opinion, but, but the law that scripture gives us is the law of agape, the law of, of love. Am I willing to love like Jesus and sacrifice for the sake of a brother and sister in Christ so that they might grow? Or am I going to be like Hezekiah and say, you know what, as long as it's good with me, as long as I can handle this, as long as it's good with me, then I don't care whatever, whatever anybody else might be going through. The law that scriptures give us is the law of agape, the agape test here. And so Paul says here in these first three verses, some people have a lot of knowledge, but if that knowledge isn't turned to agape kind of love, then that kind of love, it just builds up into arrogance inside of a believer where they can't possibly see with any clarity any other way of seeing maybe what, uh, from, from another perspective. They only see one side of a situation and they can't possibly see from somebody else's eyes or from their perspective. And, and the only thing that they really want is just to be right. Or the only thing they really want is not to have to give up any of their freedoms so that somebody else might be able to experience freedom in Christ too. They just want to hold on to, to their thing for themselves, not to have to. It's Hezekiah kind of stuff. It's not Jesus, agape kind of stuff here. And Paul says, arrogant knowledge like this, it puffs up, but agape love builds up. And so in this case, love is a better principle than knowledge when knowledge doesn't lead us to love. You can have all the knowledge in the world. You can feel like you've got everything figured out, but if it doesn't lead you to love, then it doesn't lead you to where Jesus is leading us. His truth will always lead us to love. We can't love God well if we don't love people well. Verse 4, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is a direct section for the black and white thinkers. Paul, Paul agrees. We know that an idol has, is nothing in this world. It's Isaiah uh, chapter 44. It's Jeremiah 10 that an idol can't do anything. They're worthless. They're fashioned by human hands. They have no power in and of themselves. They don't speak. They don't show up. They don't answer when they're called. Paul said, or the, the, the scriptures say that they're pointless. And so Paul is like, yeah, we know this. And we know that there's only one God. And we know that, that if you look around you, you're going to see that he created all things. He created you and he created me. He created them and he created them over there. We exist for him. We are for his glory. And yes, there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. He's holding all things together and we exist through him and for him. And the life that we have, he has given to us. We have not created this life in and of ourselves. He has given us what we have. So don't take credit for that. It's a robust theology that Paul throws out about God the Father and God the Son here. And so he says, yes, we know this. You strong brother and sister, you know this. But we have brothers and sisters who are struggling right now. And their conscience won't let them eat like you. They're struggling to grow and to mature and to see that they have freedom in Christ right now. And the issue is that you're not helping them. You're hurting them right now because your arrogance of thinking that you know everything or you think you know everything for everybody else right now, you know what's best for them. And you're encouraging them to eat this meat and their conscience won't allow them to handle it yet. He says that you're getting in the way. Knowledge puffs up, 
blind you from seeing the person on the other side of the aisle. But Paul says love builds up and it puts the other person first. You can't love God well if you don't love other people well. You ever see this? You see people who are just have to be right all the time? <laughs> I'm one of those people. I feel like I've got to be right all the time. And the problem with people who feel like they've got to be right all the time is that we don't always communicate being right well. Sometimes we're so stinking obnoxious, right? We forget that there's a brother or sister on the other side of an email. We forget that there's a brother or sister on the other side of a text. We forget that there's a brother or sister on the other side of our tweet or our post. We just think, as long as I get my point out there and as long as I feel like I'm right, then everything else, like you guys can figure it out. Like I'm right and you've got to get on to my page. And we forget that just as we're on a maturing process, other people are on a maturing process as well. And so we can be so obnoxious sometimes in just being right. Listen to what Paul says in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through form association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I'm going to read verse 9 again. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And so he's answering the question, is it okay for us to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? And again, he says yes sometimes and no in other scenarios. So, so, so which is it? Is, is it yes or is it no? I want you to see that the responsibility of trying to figure out whether it's a yes or a no doesn't, doesn't lay on the weaker brother. The, the onus of responsibility is not on the weaker believer who's struggling with their conscience and trying to figure out, how do I be free in Christ? The onus of responsibility here lies on the stronger brother and, and sister. He says, you make sure you don't put a stumbling block in their way. You make sure that, you, that what you know you don't use to destroy them. I want you to know, if you, do you hear that language that he's using here? This is it's Hezekiah kind of stuff. That's your sons and your daughters. This is your family. This is your faith community. This is the broader community being carried off to Babylon and turned into unit kind of stuff here. There's a care about somebody else other than just yourself that Paul's talking about here. What he's calling for believers to do is that for believers in Christ, they are to show agape love, the self-sacrificial love for one another. I've used this illustration before, but I, but I, think, it, I think it works here in this scenario too. When I, when I was a, a, in, in grade school, there was a, a game. It's not really a game, but it was a, um, kind of something that you do. Uh, you, you, uh, you, you start talking with somebody like, hey, how's the weather? Or how's sports? Or blah, blah, blah. And you get their attention, and then you have a friend who would sneak up behind them. And as you have their attention, the friend gets behind them and then they kind of get down on their hands and knees and they're back behind their knees and, and just as they get into position, you just give them a push over. And then they go falling down. It's really a pretty cruel game. It's not a fun game at all, right? Because people can get hurt in that scenario. Some people chuckle because you did it. Um, praying for you. Uh, but pray for me too because I did it too. Um, 
But that's, that's a stumbling block, right? Instead of yelling out and saying, hey, you're about to fall, you just give them the nudge over. Paul's saying, don't become a stumbling block to somebody else. You yell and let them know that something is about to happen. If you know your brother is about to fall, you yell out and you let them know. You do everything that you can to not knock them over. You do everything you can to help them stay up on their feet and grow. And Paul's saying, guys, these might be gray issues, but if you keep calling people into the gray and they're not ready for the gray, and you cause them to work against what they feel free in Christ to do, they're working against their conscience. He says, you cause them to sin, and you are crushing them. And as you crush them, you're not just sinning against them, but you're sinning against Christ as well. And so he says, what you feel like may be a small deal, it's actually a really, really big deal because it's, it's sin. It's sin against your brothers and sisters, but it's also sin against Christ. And so here's what he concludes in verse 13. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, none of us want to read the rest of this. But he says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. It's a bold statement, isn't it? To know that you might be causing a brother or sister to stumble and you say, whatever my action is, I'm willing to set that aside. I'm willing to set my right aside in order that they might grow. Even if it means I may never eat something again, I may never do something again. Even if it means I have to set aside my right in order for them to grow. He was limiting his freedom for the sake of others. You can't grow well if you don't love well. You can't love God well if you don't love people well. And Paul was saying sometimes we've got to be willing to set aside our rights so that our brothers and sisters can grow. Because there's nothing more damaging for the church than when people inside of the church begin to fight over things that don't really matter. Not, not fighting over doctrinal things where that we should really have, have, you know, be dogmatic about on certain things, but fighting over gray issues where, where it could be yes, where it could be no, where we, we just can't be dogmatic. There's nothing more damaging than when we start fighting over this kind of stuff because there's splintering and division that begins to take place. But what we measure ourselves against is not the measure of our opinion, what feels comfortable and, and what I'm willing, I might be willing to get out of and not, and, and not lose anything of it. But the measure that we have is the measure of, of agape, unconditional love that is not looking out for my own interest, but looking out for the interest of somebody else. See, Hezekiah, he, he lived a really, really good life. Hezekiah loved God. But he had this one little flaw as he got close to the end. He says, I'm going to, as long as I look good, as long as I'm not inconvenienced right now, it doesn't matter what happens down the road. As long as I'm good, I'm okay. And sometimes we, we live really good lives and we have a good stretch of life, and we come to this point where I could choose a sacrifice and look out for myself, or I can choose an agape love. And there's a teetering that happens in that space. And, and that's an issue. Am I going to think about me? Am I going to think about somebody else? And I'm just going to be honest with you. That's a hard place for me because I often choose myself way more than I choose other people. I don't know where you kind of fit into that space. But this is what Paul calls us back to. In these areas of gray, am I willing to set aside my right to be right so that somebody else might grow? Or am I going to stay dogmatic and say, as long as it's, it's good with me? So I want you to think about this. You know, I, I want you to think, what are the gray areas that you might be dealing with? What, what are some things that you might be just kind of hanging on to and saying, this is my way or the highway, but it's not a clear yes or no? What, what, are, what are the things that you might be able to sacrifice 
for a brother and a sister so that they might grow. I'm guessing there might be a thing or two that you're hanging in on. Again, I know I've got a few things in, in my own world. What have you called a small deal that on the surface seems like a really small deal, but when you weigh it up against agape love, you know, it actually becomes a really big deal. It becomes really big. And are you willing to agape love somebody, willing to set that aside in order that they might grow? Because I'm, I'm, just to be honest with you, I'm, I'm working through this. Just like with the, like, we, we could talk about alcohol, we could talk about drinking, we could talk about smoking, we could talk about chewing, we could, we, could, we could talk about can you go to the casino, we could talk about all these things that, you know, might be gray areas. But I think the biggest thing that we're dealing with right now in front of us is, is masks, right? And, and, and just personally, I'm struggling through this, trying to figure out how do I lead my own life? How do I lead our church? Like, how do I lead in a place like, is it yes sometimes? Is it no sometimes? Is it always yes? Is it always no? Like, we're, we're all working through this. But I think what will guide us in all of this, that sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, is this, this law of, of agape. Am I willing to, if, if need be, am I willing to set aside something so that a brother or a sister can grow? If need be, am I willing to put on something or take off something in order that a brother, don't go too far with that, um, that, that a brother or sister can grow? You know, am, I, am I willing to love unconditionally like Jesus? Let's pray. Father, this is not political. This is your word. This is us trying to figure out how do we live in love, and there is no way that we can love like you love without your spirit at work in us. Your son Jesus is the greatest example of how we love other people well, how we set aside ourselves, how we set aside our right so that others might have life, so that others might grow, so that others can mature. And the greatest thing that we want in our church is for our people to find you and experience you, to know what it looks like to live in full freedom. That might even be sometimes us limiting our freedom so somebody else can learn to live in that freedom. I don't know, Lord. We're working through this. And so would you show us how? Lead us by your spirit. Lead us into love in every scenario, not just when it's convenient for us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.